Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations. By paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi, from Princeton Theological Seminary. John Sung, Modern Chinese Christianity and the Making of a New Man, written by Daryl Ireland and published by Baylor University Press in 2020, explores the life and spirituality of a Chinese revivalist whose ministry initially operated on the fringe of mainline Protestant Christianity, came to be the dominant expression of Chinese Christianity today. Dubbed the Billy Sunday of China for the staggering number of people he led to Christ, Song Sangjie, more popularly known as John Sung, has captured the imaginations of generations of readers. In this monograph, Daryl upends conventional images of John Sung and theologically conservative Chinese Christianity. Daryl argues in this book that a study of Sung is a crucial but overlooked piece in the puzzle of modern China and modern Chinese Christianity. Working with new sources, this groundbreaking book paints the picture of a man who struggled alongside his Chinese contemporaries to find a way to save their nation. With a sharp storytelling and careful analysis, Daryl reveals how Song ingeniously reformulated the Chinese, uh, the Christian faith so that it was transformative and transferable throughout China and Southeast Asia. This 10-year investigation into the life and work of Song has prompted Daryl to write more broadly about revitalization movements, the role of women in revivalism, and religious conversion. Over the course of our conversation today, we'll take a closer look at this important work, how this book and the life of John Song guides the readers in better understanding the modern Chinese Christianity and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are very privileged to talk with Daryl Ireland, the author of John Sung, Modern Chinese Christianity and the Making of a New Man. And as we begin, I would like to briefly uh, introduce Daryl Ireland to our listeners as well. Daryl Ireland is the Research Assistant Professor of Mission at Boston University School of Theology. His work focuses on the history of Christianity in Asia, as well as the intersection of international development and faith. Daryl is the director of the Chinese Christian Posters Project, which has digitized and made publicly available 700 Christian posters from the Republican era in China from 1911 to 1949. 
nationalists, commu uh, communists, and Christians all use posters to convert people's imagination, to visualize for them the good life and what was keeping them from achieving it. In so doing, the posters became a graphic depiction of the contested nature of what China's national salvation meant in the first half of the 20th century and how Christians competed directly with China's political parties to save the nation. Daryl is also the co-director of the China Historical Christian Database, a massive international collaborative effort in the digital humanities to identify where every Christian church, school, hospital, convent, publishing house, and the like were located in China between 1550 and 1950, and to record who was connected to those places, both foreigners and Chinese. The combined, the combined temporal and spatial and relational information allows the CHCD to quantify and visualize Christianity in China in new and powerful ways, allowing scholars to use big data to rethink the connections between China and the West. Welcome, Professor Ireland, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could start us off by, by telling us a few words about yourself. That is, where did you grow up, um, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study. And please feel free to mention any influential mentors or interlocutors that you might have had along the way. Sure. I grew up in the state of Washington, um, just outside of Seattle, a small town of Port Orchard. Um, but my father was a pastor, and that meant we moved some as, uh, through childhood. So I spent my first nine years there, but later moved to California, and then graduated from high school in Reno, Nevada. Um, College, perhaps because I had been moving around a bit as a, a child, became an opportunity to travel some more. And so I actually did my undergraduate in three different schools. I went to Northwest Nazarene University, then the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and graduated from Wheaton College just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Um, but it was really the China became more serious for me and came alive, actually, when I was pursuing my master, uh, master's degree at Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. And it was actually the old story perhaps of boy falls in love with a girl and has to learn what the girl likes. And so it was my wife who was very interested in China and was in fact planning to um, work in China or the person who became my wife. And so I, I quickly had to sort of brush up on something about China to make sure I could, I could hold a decent conversation with her. Um, and so she was the one who really got me first interested in it. And we did move and we lived in Taiwan um, together for a number of years. And while living there, um, and in particular traveling um, to mainland China and Hong Kong, I became very curious about Christianity in, in the region. Um, and there were times where I felt Ho, like I was so close to something that I just couldn't focus on it. It, it. it was happening. I was my nose was pressed up against this book and I needed to sort of step back so I could actually read maybe what was on the page or or grasp what was happening in front of me. And so that's when I decided I wanted to return and work on um, a, a terminal degree, a doctoral degree really trying to get a better grasp of what was happening in Chinese Christianity. And so I, I thought that getting some historical perspective would be helpful. And um, I, getting there was 
was, you know, through a various um, people became extraordinary resources in helping me do that. The first were just the people who pointed me in the direction. So Daniel Bayes was really important for even helping me think about further study and where to study. A former professor of mine, Mark Knoll, um, recommended Boston University and to, to work with Dana Robert, um, with, under whom I did do my, my dissertation, was a great advisor. And then while I studied at, at BU, I had the wonderful opportunity to um, get feedback and work with several people who were very influential um, on the way I think. One is Eugenio Minigan, who teaches uh, Chinese history here at Boston University, um, now a collaborator on the project you mentioned, the China Historical Christian Database. So that's been a fun evolution of our relationship. But also um, Peggy Bendroth or Margaret Bendroth, Bendroth. She was at the time the librarian at the uh, Congregational Library here in Boston, um, but she was teaching a class that allowed me to think about John Song in terms of American Christianity and um, her insights, particularly around fundamentalism, which show up as a, a particularly important part of John Song's identity um, and gender issues were really powerful and transformative, so I'm grateful for her. And then also I, I should mention that um, Professor Lian Shi at Duke um, interacted with various parts of my work because I was in many ways building off of his work. He had um, published Redeemed by Fire while I was uh, a, a doctoral student, and he has a full chapter on John Sung. And so he was an important um, person for me to seek guidance from and wisdom and to try to understand how I might build on the great work he had done. Oh, thank you so much um, for sharing about your life and about especially um, the interlocutors, the mentors, and kind of uh, the guides that you had along the way uh, that have kind of influenced you in your journey and in your work as well. Um, if it's okay, I would also like to invite you to tell us a little bit about how you came to write this great book. I know you mentioned um, a, brief, uh, a brief moment in your life um, when you were in Hong Kong and Taiwan and in your journeys as well. But um, I know uh, as you've written um, in your book, it's, it's been a long-term project. Um, and we're curious, how did, how did this idea develop and kind of what led you to go on this quest of examining the life of John Sung? Um, what was your research process like and how was your writing experience overall? And I ask this because as you have briefly touched upon in your preface, this book has led you to a quite fascinating journey from New York to all the way to Singapore. So please feel free to share with us. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Here I was having lived in Taiwan, traveled around um, in Asia a bit, particularly among Chinese communities and wanting to then get a better grasp of what I'm seeing in Chinese Christianity, think I would like to do a, a doctorate in maybe world Christianity or, or Chinese studies, but, but use this as uh, an opportunity to, to get deeper into Chinese Christianity. And it was really awkward when, I think it was my very first interview at one of the schools where one of the professors heard me say that I was excited and interested in Chinese Christianity. And he asked me, well, Daryl, do you know something about John Song? And I couldn't pull up the name. I, I, I was kind of a blank, so no. And he said, well, you know, that's okay. And proceeded to give me just a brief description of his life where, you know, he grew up in a Methodist family, went to the United States, 
um, and studied at Ohio Wesleyan University, got his bachelor's degree in just three years, and then in three more years went on and got a PhD in chemistry, then went to Union Theological Seminary, where, you know, John Song had such a powerful conversion that um, the the, the liberal people at, at Union were scared of the true gospel light, as John Sung would describe it, and so threw him in an insane asylum. And when he was released, he went back to China and led over the next 10 years of his life or so approximately 100,000 people to faith in Jesus Christ, which would be about 10% of all Protestants, uh, Chinese Protestants in the world at the time. So, you know, he finishes a summary and is like, sound familiar? <laughs> it was so embarrassing to be like, no, how could I not? I want to, you know, here I am. I want to study Chinese Christianity and I've never even heard of this guy. Um, and so that was sort of the, the first seed of an idea. Well, maybe there's something to be studied about this guy, John Song. Um, and so I actually began tinkering around. His diaries were beginning to be published or at least parts of his diary. So I got my hands on those and was reading them and decided that in my first year in my doctoral program um, to do a little bit of work on the time that John Song spent in Union where he had this incredible conversion and was eventually thrown out into the insane asylum. And um, so for that final term paper, I was excited about it. And I contacted the archivist at Union and she said, well, we don't have anything. He didn't graduate from here. So we don't keep records on students like that. And so I said, well, I have to do this paper. So can I just come down and rummage through maybe what other courses were being taught at the time or just what the spirit of the school was like in 1926 and 1927 when, when Song was there? And so she graciously said, sure, come on down. We'll see if we can find some materials for you. But when I arrived, it was extraordinary. Um, I think it's because they're just understaffed. So how can you prioritize when there's so much work to do? But knowing I was actually coming, she take Ruth Cameron Tonkis actually took the time to put together a file of all the materials that they had on John Song. And so it was this newly created file. It was the first researcher to get to see it. And it was incredible because although it was not exhaustive, it was clear that it was really complicating the story that I'd heard about John Song in his time at Union, that he had just had this amazing gospel conversion and the liberals were so spiritually blind that they couldn't handle this um, old time religion and, and threw him out. And so I, I suddenly realized there's a lot more to this John Song story than's been told before. And so that was the first step. But to really flesh out the rest of the story, I knew I was going to need more sources because after all, his life didn't begin or end in 1927 at the, when he was put in an insane asylum. He went on to a full career. So how do you do that? He didn't really publish books. Um, he he was an itinerant evangelist. He just traveled. So how do you, how do you begin to tell that story? Um, and I decided that maybe the key was going to be trying to get my hands on his diaries that, as I said, were starting to come out, um, but they had been very selectively um, edited and I'm grateful for it. I mean, let's be honest, his diaries are so um, meticulous. We don't need to know every dish he ate and whether salt was on the table or not, or whether his foot was itching. I mean, he would let us know if he had an itchy foot and how long the itch lasted. He, he wrote down just about everything it seemed that could happen in a day. So it was good that these were edited, but they were also edited clearly for sort of a spiritual reason that, you know, how might a quip here or a thought he had there act as um, sort of a 
a spiritual vitamin for, for the readers of those who are reading these um, edited diaries. But I wanted the unedited version. What was he, what was going on? What was he thinking about? What was his experiences like? Where was he visiting? Um, and so I decided that I would go to Singapore because I knew that his diaries had been photographed at high resolution and a full copy of all his diaries, those photographs had been deposited um, digitally at um, Trinity Theological College in Singapore. Now, it was a gamble. I had spoken to a scholar there at the school who was a professor, um, and he himself was denied access to those files. He had tried to get a hold of them. They're there just within reach. They're in the library on a CD. Uh, he just wanted to see them, but wasn't allowed. And so I knew this was a bit of a gamble to try to fly all the way over there and ask to see them, but I went ahead and did it and sat there for a better part of a week as I was told, I'm sorry, these are closed. And I encouraged them to ask, well, could we look and try this? And I ended up calling um, John Song's daughter in Canada during that process to ask if I could possibly use it. Um, Bishop Hua Yong, the Methodist um, bishop, there in Singapore and Malaysia also was active trying to get, get me access to these files. And so finally, um, at the very end of the week, I was given the opportunity to look at the diaries and also take images of them. And that was quite extraordinary. Um, and I guess the takeaway for me has been, there is power in just showing up. You know, that I was told not to bother to go to Union Seminary. We don't have anything. On John Song, but the power of showing up and I'm suddenly handed a full file or, you know, I'm told, don't bother going to Singapore. You're not going to get your hands on those materials. But by just showing up, um, it it puts people in, I guess, a little bit of a position of, well, what do we do with this person? He's here now. Um, and, and so they were generous enough and kind enough to give me those materials. And so that uh, those two pieces were key to putting together the John Song story. Of course, I also did quite a bit of work in archives in Europe, um, in China, and Malaysia, just throughout Southeast Asia, because John Song was, was traveling and people were sending reports about him back to the Netherlands, to the US. Um, the records were being kept in, in Malaysia and in Singapore and in Indonesia, um, Taiwan, the Philippines. So it, it's been quite a journey to try to follow John Song and reconstruct some of his life. Um, and I'm grateful for it. What an opportunity uh, to get to travel the world in a sense and follow on um, the footsteps of quite a fascinating character. Wow. Thank you for sharing your insights on your extraordinary journey in, into writing this uh, great book. And I think uh, one of the biggest treasures we have in doing such interviews, th this podcast, is we get to really experience and kind of reflect on your journey, the author's journey of writing this book and the, the complexities behind uh, of writing such a, uh, such a book itself. And this kind of really helps us to put into perspective the amount of work travel investigation that went into this great book. So thank you uh, for sharing that. Um, now turning to the book itself, I think one of the first things that you set out to do in your quest, uh, which is also very helpful for the readers is how you lay out the context of this era, the 20th century China and the impacts of the May 4th movement. Um, for our listeners that might be unfamiliar, um, could you help us lay some of the framework and help us locate the context of this time? 
what was going on during this transition into the 20th century China, the repercussions of the May 4th movement, and especially how this was really relevant uh, to the Chinese Christians. Yeah, it is so important, I think, for all of us to get a better understanding of the situation of China in the early 20th century. You know, it has this long dynastic history of thousands of years of emperors. And we enter um, into the early 20th century. And in 1911, um, that all collapses. And the the political structures of China have, have sort of just caved in, largely in many ways. I mean, there were a number of factors, but in, at least in major part because of the, the foreign influence and exercise of power, China had lost a series of wars um, with Britain, with Japan. There, there's just kind of this constant sort of receding of its, its military power. Its economy was being um, ravaged largely by like the opium trade. Uh, so saw a lot of money leaving China with very little coming back. Uh, so China found itself in this weak, weakened position. And in 1911, political system collapses. And then, you know, there's, there's this maybe moment of optimism. We're, we are the first republic in Asia, uh, say the Chinese. There, this is this exciting moment. Maybe a, a new era begins. But by 1919, the end of World War I, a, a, a deep cloud is over China. Um, China had sent 100,000 people to the European front um, in World War I and to support the allies. And when the war was over, they thought that they would be rewarded by maybe getting some of their land back and some of the treaties abolished that had put them in such an awkward position. But in fact, what happened is the land that had been seized by the Japanese was just, or, or by the Germans, was just transferred to the Japanese. And there was a sense that helplessness what can we do? These global powers are just trading away our, our land. And so this really um, angered students. There was a sense of frustration. And they, so on March, uh, May 4th, 1919, um, when they heard that the Treaty of Versailles was going to actually give away Chinese land to Japan, they mobilized and staged a protest. They marched to um, to the foreign delegation quarter. They wanted to meet with some of the ambassadors to say, you can't let this happen. But they were denied access to that quarter. The guard, you know, the sort of the military guards said no. And I think that this was just a, a reenactment for themselves that we can't even control our own land. These people are here in China and we can't go to their doors. We're, we're blocked out of our own land. And so that inspired a series that the protests turned um, more heated. They, they, they torched one of the Chinese officials' homes who had been involved in giving some um, Japan more influence in China earlier, um, a few years before. And, and the thing just whole escalated. Uh, but what's really important is not necessarily just the events of that day, but this sense of something has to change more dramatically than becoming the first republic in Asia. Um, the, you know, what happened in 1911, this new revolution is clearly not revolutionary enough because we are still being uh, traded away. We are pawns in other people's game. We have to change or there will be no China in the 20th century. Um, we have to become a new nation, a new kind of people. And that really set the agenda um, for not just the, the, the uh, 
subsequent years, but I would say maybe even for the rest of the century. Uh, but certainly you can see this driving everything that happens up to the communist takeover in 1949. There's this idea of we have to create a new and stronger China. And people are arguing about what that means. Um, and I, I find it fascinating that in just the four years after the 1919 protests, the May 4th movement, over 500 periodicals come out, most of them dedicated to debating how do we become a new China, a different kind of China. And new is really the key language here. They, they realize that we have to be different. And so I love going through the titles of all these journals. You've got new man, new youth, new woman, new farmer, new agricultural, new society, new reconstruction. It's just new, new, new. Everything is about we. how are we going to become new? But it was really important because China was debating what, what does newness look like? I mean, it's one thing to say we have to be different, but how? What are we going to do? How are we going to organize our lives um, as women? We need new women. To, For instance, we realize that half our people being stuck in their homes is, is trying to fight the rest of the world with one arm tied behind our backs. So we need new women. But what does that look like? What does that mean? Uh, this was a pressing question and people were writing and debating about this furiously. Uh, what does it mean to have a new economy that's an urbanized economy that's working out of an, you know, an industrialized and urbanized economy? What does that mean? People were fighting about that, trying to imagine what the best way forward was. Um, there was a lot of concern about bodies. Uh, there was a sense that maybe China is weak as a nation because the people themselves are physically weak. If we were stronger, healthier, we may be able to, to, to be able to take a different place in the global world order. And so, you know, there was a lot of attention given to how to improve the Chinese body. And what I think is really important for all of us to understand is how those questions were swirling around and really dominating what was happening in China, and certainly in the first half of the 20th century. And so when John Song begins his ministry, when he returns to the U.S. and um, comes back to China in 1927, that's the context that he's entering. He's, it, it's a swirling debate around really pressing questions. How do we become new? And it's in that context that he's able to offer something to China, um, believing that it's through Jesus Christ that you as a person, but not just as a person, we as an entire nation become, can become something different and something new. Well, thank you for that context. I think it really helps us provide um, the life and the ministry and the journey of John Sung, um, especially in his return, as you mentioned, uh, to China and kind of puts into perspective what this word new meant uh, in this specific era. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then taking a closer look at the book itself, um, you provide seven chapters that goes into rather significant detail about not only the life and ministry of John Song, but also the connections to modern Chinese Christianity. And what I found very fascinating was your approach um, and utilizing the word new, um, imagining the modern Chinese Christianity um, through one man's journey of becoming new. And you begin by taking an in-depth I think, look into the mysterious figure of this John Sung and the formation of his faith and his early journey um, to the United States. What I was very intrigued by 
was John Sung's studies in the United States. Um, we think that um, he started right away into theological study, but that was not the case. Um, during the 1920s, he arrived and his, his path began from chemistry um, and into then theology. And one of the rather unexpected incidents that takes place that you narrate in detail is about the visions that Song had during the beginning years of his seminary education. If I'm not mistaken, these visions would lead uh, Song in being removed um, from Union Theological Seminary and admitted to the Bloomingdale Hospital in New York, um, a hospital that primarily cared for the mentally ill. So, Professor Arlen, do you mind sharing more about this particular stage of Song's life, I think, which is very formative for him, um, some of its details and that, that you also found interesting in your research, um, like, for example, you know, Song's visions that he had um, do you mind sharing more on those? Yeah, absolutely. This is really important to me um, because whenever I talk to someone about John Song, if they've ever heard of him, and certainly not everyone has, but he is one of the few Chinese Christians that some people have heard about. And when they do, invariably, it's because of his dramatic conversion story. So it's always been told because John Song began to tell it this way that he had studied chemistry. He had sort of reached the highest attainments in the secular world. He had a PhD in, in science, which and China at the time was seen as one of the pathways to how do we become new? We need to adopt science. This is the way to do it. So he had, he had the degrees. He could be one of those revolutionaries to come back to China. But he goes to Union before he go, goes back home with his, his PhD in chem, chemistry, thinking maybe a little more theological study. He might get involved and be one of the leaders of the YMCA. Um, so he goes, he goes to, to Union. And he said, and later in life, and the story that people remember is that it was when he was there that he really had a gospel conversion and not his, the faith became his own. And it was, it was through... Um, hearing the the girl preacher, Old Dean Utley, this uh, 13-year-old who, you know, in her little angelic presence could so communicate the gospel that it cut to his heart and he had to repent of his sins. And it was such a dramatic conversion that, remember, this is 1927, so the fundamentalist modernist controversies quite hot um, that Union and its liberalism couldn't stand this, the, the truth, the power of the gospel demonstrated in John Song's life. So they kicked him out and hit him in, a, in an insane asylum. Um, and that's always been the story. But what I found was something that was really very different. Um, so it was in digging around that, yes, John Song did get his PhD in chemistry. He did all of that work and he did go to Union, um, eager to work maybe for the YMCA. But while he was there, he began um, to have a series of visions and hearing voices that became very um, problematic. Uh, he, had, he wrote a letter to one of his old professors back in Ohio saying how he had, been, had a vision um, and that he, he draws pictures of the vision and how the world sort of has transmuted into the body of Jesus Christ and the Niagara Falls on the map is where the blood of Christ is pouring out of his hand. And Europe has become the stomach of, of Jesus, where the word of God is digested. And this is creative, but, but not necessarily completely bizarre until he starts, you know, talking about how 
Um, we're all need to be cells of this man. And I've been given a special commission before Christ returns. And anyway, the professor who reads this says, writes a letter to Union and says, you better check on the student. I'm a little bit concerned. And so when they do, they, they, they knock on his dorm room. He's not there. They open it and they start going through his papers and they are just getting weirder and weirder. Uh, they, they started off as maybe some research he'd been doing on interesting subjects. And, and you, when I go through those outlines, they look like what I would produce in a, in a research outline. But later they just start getting more, more and more odd from you know, research point one, talk about the history, re research point two, go a little deeper on this particular location or something. His, his outlines start talking about man walking in Maine, Point two, hurt here, here, and here. Point three, four o'clock. And you're thinking, what kind of outline is this? This is getting really wild. And apparently the, those who were going through his materials thought some, something similar. They thought, this doesn't look normal. Let's take a deeper look. And so they, they had a psychiatrist come over and interview Sung. And after the interview, he said, you need, we need to get him into a hospital right away. Sung resisted. He didn't think he needed to be. Um, but eventually they convinced him to self-admit um, to, to, to go into the hospital. So it wasn't that Union forced him out. Song, they encouraged him, but Song admitted himself into the hospital. And at first he was really quite excited about what he was experiencing in the hospital. It's so interesting to read his diaries at that point. Um, he would pick up the, the newspaper and as he's going through the crossword puzzle of the New York Times, he sees God is sending him coded messages in the, in the, in the crossword puzzle. Um, he's looking at the carpet sitting there in, the, in, a, in a room, and he realizes that that carpet has a secret stitching that proclaims holiness. Um, he reads the um, National Geographic, I remember, and he finds that God is telling him through the National Geographic that... Satan is coming to give John Song and Jesus problems for the next 33 days. Um, just like Jesus was in the desert uh, or, or yeah, Jesus lived 33 years. So John Song would sort of have to go through these 33 days of trial. So he's really wrapped up in this and it's, it's an interesting point of a lot of magical thinking um, is sort of the psychological term for this, where he sees these coded things and everything he's looking at. Um, and if you've seen like the movie, uh, what is it with Russell Crowe, a beautiful mind, uh, where he begins seeing all these secret codes everywhere. In many ways, John Song's doing something very similar, but there comes this fascinating turning point that really moves John Song into a different trajectory. Um, he was reading through the newspaper apparently one evening and one of the advertisements got him thinking. And so he writes his own advertisement and it's an advertisement about um, the best book series ever on radios. And if you want to understand transistors, if you want to understand um, speakers, if you want to understand coils, you know, you need to read Mark. You need to read Matthew. You need to read Luke. You need to read John. These are the experts in radio. And it, you read it. And when I first saw it in his journal, it just seemed cute in a way to pass the time. But at the very end, he said, I need to get busy and understand um, the radio of Mark or something like that. And he spent then the next several weeks 
going through every word in the book of Mark. And he created this elaborate system that he said he was using a dictionary that Jesus gave him so he could translate the words of Mark into a radio schematic. And he created this really bizarre, several of them charts that uh, some, one of them appears in the book that shows how he was building a radio schematic. And then when he was done and he was exhausted because he was spending all day from the moment he could, would get up before dawn until the nurses forced him to bed at night, he was working nonstop on this. But when he was done, he could sit back and he could begin to hear these secret radio messages from God. And they were started off so dull. You know, here I've been following his diaries, Byung-ho, and I'm thinking, this is going to get weird. But then it starts off and it was like, the eternal is eternal. The eternal is long living. The eternal lasts forever. And it, he would number them and they would go thousands and thousands of just these little messages that were moving an incremental phrase from one thing to the next. And they were not interesting until some days later, they have begun to morph. And he then starts writing the one that really stood out to me is, um, he writes about this mother and how she forgives. And after that, you notice there's this complete change in his diaries. And he is obsessed with this mother who is a threefold mother. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Susanna and Mary, the mother of, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he has these three Marys and he draws pictures of these Marys and how they're related. Um, and they are collectively though, the mother, and he is in love with her and they are, he's telling her secrets in her diaries and he's getting secrets back from her. And he prays to her, asks for her forgiveness. And there's a way in which it, sometimes it feels like he's just feminized the, the, the Christian Trinity. It's now just three Marys instead of God, the father, son, and Holy spirit. It's Mary one, Mary two, and Mary three. But it's not really that Christian insofar as this mother also is telling John Song how um, the, the mistakes that uh, the, the foibles in the Bible and the failures of Jesus. And so it really begins to separate out um, John Song from his sort of Christian um, upbringing and his understanding of Jesus from the church. And he's, he, he's fully enmeshed in that. In fact, he is so enamored with the mother that he writes about a wedding ceremony that he marries her in his um, hospital room. There are 7,000 gods and goddesses in attendance um, and they're married. They consummate the marriage and things then sort of just go haywire. If they weren't wild enough, when you're reading his diaries, he, he no longer can put together complete sentences. He just starts drawing really elaborate loopy figures and with a few words here and there. And so, I mean, he's really lost. And I, I want to pause here for a moment because I've shared this with some people and they've challenged me saying, well, you know, this is maybe an indigenous theology. It's a creative work. You're trying to force him into sort of a Western understanding of the Christian faith. But what I have retorted is when you read through the diaries, it's actually a process of grief that I experienced because you see someone lose more and more contact with the rest of the people around him. Before you and I right now, Francis Byung-ho, we have a shared reality. It's, it's mediated by virtual things, but you can ask me questions and I understand where you're coming from and I can try to respond. Maybe I ramble a little bit, but we're, we're sharing a sense of commonality. We understand one another, but John Song 
began to retreat from that shared reality and lived in his own isolated reality. It, his experience of the mother was not life-giving. It rather took his life. It made it very small, wrapped up and um, unconnected and unshareable with anyone else. And so you see someone's life really begin to fall apart. Um, and, and that goes on for quite some time. Eventually, though, um, he figures out that he's not going to be released from the insane asylum if he continues to talk and act like he does. So he begins to make some intentional moves. He switches to writing from English to Chinese in his diary. Um, and that allows him eventually to, the doctors can no longer track that he's still very much writing about the, the mother. Um, and he's acting a little better. He was being banned from things like the basket weaving class because he was too wild. I think that was one of my favorite sort of discoveries, but um, he, he begins to settle down. And so when one of his old um, campus pro, um, pastors from Ohio State University, where he'd gotten his PhD, um, one of the, the chaplains was visiting New York and decided to just stop in and check on his old friend, John Song, and found out he'd been moved to an insane asylum. So he visited the, him there in the asylum and found out that um, they were happy to let him go if he would take responsibility for him. And it turns out that the hospital had been covering the, the expenses of John Song for quite some time. Union had sort of bankrupted their emergency fund um, in putting him in there in the hospital. And so the hospital had taken Song on as a charity case. And when they found someone who would be willing to take him off their hands, they, they jumped at it. And so sent Song home with this um, pastor from Ohio. And that really sort of ends the time in the U.S. because Song actually reapplies to go back to New York, uh, Union Seminary. But they said, no, well, we can't take a chance on you having another breakdown. We're not sure what we're getting. So no. And so China has to, uh, John Song has to go back to China there in, in 1927. And I found that so fascinating because what a different story than what John Song later says, you know, he villainizes Union Seminary as this bastion of liberalism, but the actual reports show he loved the school and he's asking to go back even after he's released. I mean, he, he saw it as he says, you know, the highest school with the greatest prophets of God. Um, he, he had such a high view of the school, but later, as I'll talk about, we'll probably in one of our further questions, he begins to really change that story. But initially he thought it was a great school. Um, the only problem was this, this sort of world that he began to inhabit broke him off um, not only from Union, but from everyone else. And, and so when he goes back to China, he finds himself really in that position of, he, he, he's without roots, he's without connections, he is lost, he's living in a, a, his own sort of created world of himself and the mother. And, and that's where he leaves New York. So it's, a, it, it's not the story that we hear and have been told of John Song having this gospel conversion and comes back to China and gives God the, the real gospel that they've been waiting for, for all these years, he actually returns to, to China, a very broken and confused and lost man. Well, thank you for those insights. I think, um, I know you go in great detail in providing some of what um, Song went through uh, in the insane asylum. And um, you, as you mentioned, you provide that little um, figure, uh, this drawing, this, I would just say a drawing of scribbles uh, that Song made. Um, and it's just really fascinating the, uh, the period that he goes through uh, during his stay in the United States. 
And you kind of also put into perspective um, that, of course, it was a very controversial time. It might be seen as, you know, quote, a destruction of his life, a, a phase where, you know, uh, it's not life giving, but rather life taking. Right. But um, you also mentioned that this was a time where, you know, you're you're being deconstructed, you're being broken and a time where you mentioned, quote, made him new. So I think we clearly see this um, in the following chapter, in chapter two, in which you title a new man. I yeah. see in chapter one, you see uh, him going through this process of uh, breaking down. But in this chapter, in going into chapter two, you see him becoming a new man. How yeah. Sung reinterpreted and reimagined the incidents that took place uh, in America for him. And, and you see him, you know, with the help of missionaries such as W.B. Cole um, in, in kind of... Um, revisiting his time there and kind of putting more flesh and re reinterpreting his time. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little more of, on how Sung reconstructed this experience at Union Theological Seminary and this story of conversion um, through his autobiography titled My Testimony from being, you know, an old man uh, and turning into an, quote, a new man. Yeah, right. So, you know, so to begin, I just want to reiterate that when Song gets back to China, how really broken he is, and he is not this charismatic Christian evangelist. One of his first acts is to go to the local temple and um, pay his honor to Guanyin, um, one of the bodhisattvas in Buddhism, who also has connections to sometimes in iconography, at least the Mary, the mother of Jesus, but also sometimes gets conflated with the Taoist queen mother of the West. And he called her in his diaries, the mother, the queen mother. So it's interesting that he goes to Guanyin, but just to say he is living outside of the traditional sort of Christian space that we've imagined him inhabiting when he comes back to China. And not only is he outside that space, but he's also viewed very suspiciously. He's got a problem on his hands. Union had sent letters back to China saying to his parents, your son is crazy. Um, and, and, and so they, re, they received their son back home wary, you know, who is this? And not only did um, his parents have concerns, but the missionary community that had supported Song going to the U.S., they had concerns. Um, they had gotten word of his insanity. And so it's really interesting. He comes back to China with one of a handful of PhDs in chem chemistry. He, and you would think, would have whatever job he wants. And he can't even work at his own Methodist church's high school. They won't hire him because of the stigma of insanity. And, and so he, he's really at a loss. Um, and his parents are frustrated and disappointed. They've invested in having their son go away for all of these years. And he comes back kind of a broken, confused boy, uh, man. Uh, and he, likewise, you could say there was a, um, the tension was up. He had, was forced to marry um, in an arranged marriage someone, and now he has to provide for his wife. But again, he's got no income. He was supposed to support his, some of his siblings to go through school. Again, no income. Everything had sort of rested on, John Song, you come back with a PhD and you, you take care of us. And, and that was not happening. But what happens pretty soon after he gets back is he finds his way to the missionary you mentioned, W.B. Cole who was one of the long-term Methodist missionaries who'd known Song before he went to the U.S. 
And so, but Cole was about the only one left in the region because in that year that John Song comes back to China, um, Chiang Kai-shek uh, had decided that it was time to reunite the country. China from 1911 sort of fallen into various regional warlord factions, each controlling little parts of China. And it was not a really a united country anymore. And he realized if we're going to be this new China that can stand up to the rest of the world. We can't do it divided amongst ourselves. So he tried to reunite China. And, um, but as he did so, um, you know, it began to split China apart. It, it tore initially his, his, he was able to do this unit unification campaign with the his party, the Nationalist Party, and the Communists working together, but halfway through that falls apart. And sort of about the same time that that's happening, the Christian churches in China are falling apart. They had um, been together um, in the National Christian Council, uh, Protestants of all stripes. But by 1927, there's this concern that um, the National Christian Council is too liberal and a number of the more fundamentalist-leaning groups, conservative groups begin to withdraw. And as they do, that splits Protestant Christianity in China. And, and so you've got all these splits happening. Um, and, and what happens is when Chiang Kai-shek is going through China, trying to unify it, and um, a lot of missionaries get nervous about this military operation. And they're even told by their governments to, to, to withdraw from the interior, from places like where John Song grew up in Fujian province. And so most of them do, almost all of them leave the area. There's just W.B. Cole, who was in charge of sort of education. He stays behind and he's a, he's a fundamentalist. He's, he's clearly drawn a line in the sand that he would break with that national Christian council that was far too liberal. And he, so, and he sort of rules the, the, the ecclesiastical context that John Song is back in. And John Song wants to get a job at the school. So he's meeting with W.B. Cole and it's never recorded in Song's diary or anywhere else exactly how this happens, but it seems that together they are able to listen to one another and find a story that makes sense of what happened in John Song's life. And so what we begin seeing emerging after his conversations with Cole is John Song drops talking about the mother and he starts talking about how he, how liberal union was and they couldn't stand this gospel message this true gospel light that came to flamed um into being in his heart while he was there and that that's the story of course that we've come to know later it becomes far more elaborate as song lives longer but it, it's first that seed of an idea comes up as he's talking with with cole and both of them are able to use this to their advantage. Cole is writing back to his supporters in the U.S. and uses it as a way to beat up on liberalism and modernism. It says, you know, look at Union. They're so blind that they kicked out their best student, the only one with a real heart for Jesus. You know, they, they couldn't stand it. And Song at the same time is able to use that story to reconnect. He Now Cole is on his side. His parents come to trust him. They were like, oh, you're not really crazy. It was union that was crazy. They, they didn't understand the real gospel that was at work in, in your personal life and transformation. This makes sense. And the school that had, you know, the students had made fun of Song when he first came back as a crazy kid. Now they're saying, oh, no, you're not. I, we understand now, again, it's not you that are insane. It was those 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 modernists in New York who were really the ones who were crazy. 
And that changes the dynamics for Song, and it allows him to, to rebuild a life. He, it it can, creates new social connections. And you know, for me, one of the important things is one of the theorists, uh, Robert Hefner, has written about um, the dynamics of conversion. And he says that, that a lot of one way to understand conversion is the creation of new social networks. Um, and someone who's gone through a conversion experience closes off some of their social previous social life and creates a new level of social connections with others. And you see that with Song. He, this opens up new relationships, new pathways, and those are life-giving to, the, to him. Um, and so there, there's a way in which we can see how he wasn't just saying, I'm new now. I had this dip, a, a new conversion. It was Jesus who saved me, not the mother. Um, he, he can say it, but it's more than words. It's, it's also building a new community, a new set of relationships around him. And I, I think it comes to also mean more for Song himself. The longer he, he sits with this idea that maybe it wasn't the mother that I met in New York, but maybe it was Jesus. I just didn't recognize her. And so you see him become more and more convinced and sure that it was the, it was Jesus who transformed his, his life. Now, again, what we saw in New York wasn't really a transformation. It was a, a life falling apart, but Song begins to pick and choose what happened in the asylum and things that were meaningful to him. He begins to assign to Jesus who was beginning to share with him deeper understanding of the spiritual way of the universe. And the mother just disappears and things that were awkward or embarrassing about what happened in New York, those he just leaves aside. Maybe, you know, th- those just get dumped. That, that was my confusion. That wasn't the mother and it wasn't Jesus. It was just something else. And so he, he leaves those things behind and becomes much more confident that although I didn't know it at the time, it was Jesus really who, who changed my life. Now, I say this as if John Song was sharing this story with other people that they also witnessed him drop, you know, starting by talking about the mother and then switching it out and become becoming Jesus. But he never did that. Actually, I, he was probably too clever. He, he understood the audience he was working with. So he used Jesus from the very beginning. But I think what he did is he lived into the words. He knew that Jesus would be the, the, the key to open up some doors. But as he walked through those doors, he found that it was actually changing him because now he had this new community and as he, the more he thought about this key that had unlocked the door that he thought, well, maybe this is the key that actually does, did, was giving me life and saving me from complete meltdown when I was in New York. So it's really a fascinating way of how he restores um, his life. And in that chapter where I talk about becoming a new man, this connects to the new, to what's happening in China, because everyone's trying to become a new man. There were, there were journals titled a new man, you know, th- th- this is how, how do we become this? And, and John Song, I think, becomes a living illustration of one way to do it. And it's by narrating your life in a new way. And it has really three distinct parts. Um, the first is you have to villainize your past. Um, and in China, there were plenty of people ready to villainize the past. Clearly the imperial history and our time of being sort of semi-colonized, this is a horrible, evil time. We have been a weak country. We're dirty. We're um, incapable of of fighting with um, the the resources that we have. We have squandered um, our our inheritance. So there's an easy way for everyone, both you know, nationally, but also individually to dump on their past. 
Um, and then the second move here is at once you've identified, boy, there was an old man. I was an old, bad, terrible person to recognize that in meeting Jesus Christ, there was a, there's a bridge moment. There's an opportunity to, to be freed from that past. And that's, to, and then you can become a new man, someone entirely different. You, you don't have to live out of your past anymore. You can reinvent yourself. Um, and and someone song was modeling that in some really powerful ways. And so in 1933, when he writes his own sort of autobiography, and I should clarify, he didn't write it. He dictated it sort of on the move and someone else wrote it for him. Um, but he, he clearly constructs his narrative in this way. So the overwhelming majority, I think 80 of his 100 chapters are devoted to villainizing his past, how horrible he was as a child, how corrupt he was as a college student, how darkened he was in his spiritual thinking when he went to union, um, poisoned by, and, and union was poisoned by liberalism. You know, there was all of these, the past was all bad. He meets Jesus Christ, and then everything becomes good. Um, and, and you see him do that in really fascinating, powerful ways. Um, so, you know, his old life left him weak and depressed. His new life makes, makes him strong and energized. His old life was also marked by his brilliance, his PhD, and all his academic achievements. His new life, he writes, is so um, radically different that he actually throws out his degrees and throws them in the ocean on his way back to China. Uh, I don't think that actually happened, but that's what he writes into the story. Um, and it's a way of just showing though the complete opposite, the inverse. Everything he said about his old life, that old man is flipped over and becomes something completely different as a new man. And, and so he models for, for China a way to, how do you become new? And, and that is picked up and, um, and becomes sort of transformative in this idea of modern Chinese Christianity. John Song sort of creates the, the pathway for others to follow um, into a new life. Oh, thank you uh, for sharing that. And as I'm hearing this, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul uh, and how maybe, you know, Song even might have, you know, uh, thought of, you know, uh, his Apostle Paul before his conversion and after his conversion. And, and it's quite interesting to see how he interpreted, reinterpreted um, his past and, and, and kind of structured his conversion um, into, into becoming a new man. Yeah. And yeah, and we see um, in the next chapter how John Sung, after his return home and after he's, um, I guess, uh, found himself again, uh, if I may put it that way, uh, in the beginning, um, his preaching, he even utilizes at times his, his science or chemistry education in his preaching. But we see a true turning point in his ministry, um, and that would become that would come during the middle of the nineteen middle of nineteen thirty one, and this is the part I think uh, that is important to highlight. Um, Song's uh, ministry drastically changes through his encounter with Bethel Mission and his tour across uh, Jiangzhou and Shandong, and here we see the importance of revivalism. Um, I think, which plays a very significant role in Song's ministry. So my question here is, and it may seem a little broad, but just as important, how did uh, revivalism play a role in Song's ministry? Um, what kind of impact did it have on the Chinese people during this time? Yeah, it's 
really amazing how you watch John Song sort of grow into the revivalism. And you mentioned 1931, but to, to put in perspective, I think it's important just to pause for a moment and realize his first fumbling efforts to communicate the gospel. Um, again, the, the popular picture has been John Song comes back to from Union and is this powerful evangelist from the get-go. That's not true. He was actually quite a, a, a challenge to listen to and follow. His earliest sermons are just a series of condemnations about how dumb and stupid Chinese people are and that they need, you know, he's really rough. And needless to say, it turns people off. They're not interested. Later, though, he realizes he's not getting anywhere. And so he starts listening to what people are, are talking about when they are talking with one another about um, important religious matters. And he notes how people are especially energized and interested in visions, um, angelic beings, heavenly voices. Um, these kinds of things are, are what really seem to appeal to people. And so he, he, he grasps, well, I, I actually have all kinds of experiences like those. I had them when I was in the insane asylum and I no longer attribute them to the mother or to a sick mind, but to Jesus Christ. And so he starts talking about his own secret revelations. And this is not revivalism. They, you know, they, they, they're just, they're interesting sermons to read because they are really, um, they emphasize these dramatic uh, experiences that Song had and these mysteries that were revealed to them, but they don't necessarily demand conversion. They, they sort of just invite people to be in awe of what strange experiences he was privileged to, to have. So that's the way he was really preaching until he showed up um, in Shanghai and was invited to speak at the Bethel Mission. And the Bethel Mission was started by two women, um, one from the U.S. and one from China. And they were part of this revivalist holiness network. Um, and they had regular revivals at their meetings, uh, their meeting house, their tabernacle. And so Song was being introduced to those there and he spoke and he spoke in his traditional way about mysteries. And I, I it, you get the impression from the reports that it was unique. You know, no one, no, no one said that it was transformative. It was more, it was unusual the way he delivered the message. We haven't heard something quite like this, but for whatever reason, those women who started that Bethel um, mission invited John Song to, to join their newly formed Bethel Worldwide Evangelistic Band. And I should be clear when I say band, this doesn't mean instruments that they were touring. This is a, a small group of people that toured together and were teamed up to preach the gospel. And they did it in a very much more evangelistic way, um, according to sort of the dictates of revivalism. And John Song, I think, experienced this, watched this, and saw its power. And most significantly, and drawing on what we were talking about earlier, witnessed how this condensed his three-step process into an hour or maybe two hours so that you could lead someone to understand that they were an old man. They were trapped in the old ways of China, their old sins, their old habits, all the things that were, were keeping them from being the, the kind of person and creating the kind of China they aspired um, for, that you could do that and then invite them to meet Jesus Christ at the front of the building, come forward, pray now. And, and then you could turn around after mixing with 
women and children and, and men, if you were, you know, there was this wild group of people from different, you know, social parts of, uh, of, of Chinese society. They were all mixing together like equals there at the front of the church, confessing their sins. And you could just look around and say, things are clearly different. We didn't do this before. This is new. And so there was a sense of in an hour, maybe two hours, people were traveling from their old way of being to meeting Jesus and looking around and realizing they were new people. And, but John Song never let it stop there. He always challenged them. If you're really new, then you have to be sort of the opposite of what you were before. And before I know you weren't going around telling about Jesus Christ. So to prove that you're really new, you need to now go out of these doors and tell others about Jesus. That way you will have done the complete inversion of the way you used to, to live. And so he mobilized teams thousands, tens of thousands of people to go around China um, and witness to this new power of Jesus Christ. And the power, again, was this power of becoming new, and in many ways of becoming modern, um, because it was a way to break with the past and live in this new modern present where Jesus Christ um, was the one who freed you um, to, to live anew. So yeah, it, it was a really fascinating how it sort of condensed what took John Song months to figure out. I'm an old, this old man to uh, meet Jesus to a new man. That took him months. And really, if you include to the point where he wrote or dictated his autobiography, it took that, that took six years. But in these revival services, he could condense that whole process of trying to figure out who I am and where does the mother fit and what, how do I fit New York into my life? And what about my childhood when I would hang, hang out with my dad, who was a preacher? What am I supposed to do with all of that? That took Song a long time to figure out how to create the simple structure of old man to meet Jesus, to becoming a new man until he saw revivalism. And then he realized, wow, in one service, we can deliver a transformative message to the people of China and Thereafter, he became China's preeminent um, revivalist and excelled at, at that as no one else. And you ask, how does that affect Chinese Christianity? I would say, you know, for those who have visited um, churches in China, it's it still has the dynamics of revivalism. Generally speaking, of course, you'll find outliers, but that has become the, the dominant sort of culture and structure of popular Chinese Christianity. And um, I'm not saying John Song was the only force about it, but he was certainly the most prominent one in, in creating that kind of um, power and dynamics and, and yearning for that kind of experience where a church service becomes an experience. Um, it's not, yeah, it, it, it's much more than just listening. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an entire performance um, that, that, the view, that the audience themselves are invited to participate in because by the end of a revival service, you're asked to play the central role. Um, John Song sort of disappeared. And the question was, will you respond? Um, and that question had eternal consequences. You meant either heaven or hell. And whether you wanted to or not, you had to play a role. Am I going to stay seated in my chair and risk hell? Or am I going to step forward and embrace the new life promised in Jesus Christ, um, both in heaven, but also now? Thank you for that insight. And we see um, how um, these movements, how revivalism, how Christian, uh, Chinese Christianity 
also goes in line with the context of this period. We we constantly have to put that in the back of our minds, you know, this playing off of each other of how uh, this movement of becoming new also played, you know, significant impact on uh, Chinese Christianity. And it's great to see this um, this um, dual role of, of going together, of, of this parallel um, movement um, of Chinese Christianity and also the context of this era. And um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned how, you know, um, this had a very significant, how revivalism has a significant impact on, on Chinese Christianity because we see this growth of revivalism and it's really growing. Um, within the context of urbanization taking place in China. And you highlight how urban setting, you know, suited Song and his career and how his career was built around these cities, um, this context of urbanization. So when we think of these locations and these contexts, it is also, you know, important to put a face to these audiences, you know, to kind of consider who are the recipients or the audiences of uh, Song's sermons, of Song's um, messages. So I was kind of wondering if you can say more about, you know, who these audiences were, you know, who did they primarily consist of? And as you also talk about the complexity of class during this time in China, how did this, uh, his sermon speak to them? So could you uh, share more yeah. on that? Boy, there's a lot in there. Um, it was one of the goals to not just, I didn't want to do, for instance, uh, uh, analysis of just John Song's theology or something. I wanted to understand how this was, uh, how this was appealing to people and to whom it was appealing. That, who was this, who was this attracting? So you already hinted at one of the first things that we, I think became really clear pretty quickly is that it was an urban audience that the, these messages, um, this revivalistic dynamic really worked in cities, not so much in the countryside or in the rural areas. Um, later in his career, Song briefly, when the Japanese invade China in 1937, he briefly sort of moves inland and ends up in some rural areas and finds out his ministry that had been so extraordinarily popular just sort of falls flat that it just doesn't resonate at all. Um, it really makes the most sense in, in urban areas. So he left those, instead of going back to China, urban areas that he couldn't preach in, he goes to Southeast Asia and preaches in the urban cities in the Philippines and Taiwan and, um, you know, Vietnam, Thailand. He, he really just shifts the, the, the center to other urban areas. This, the, the city is critical. And there, there are probably several factors why. One is just, as I said before, these are events and it's not about beliefs. It's about an event. And so you need a certain number of people to pull off an event. And, um, and, and, and so urban areas provided that kind of the number of people. And it also had um, urban areas were constructing free time. People had work hours and then they had non-work hours. Um, whereas on the farm, that's maybe a little harder. Like, what's work, what's not work, it all sort of bleeds together. But when there's a clock where you clock in and clock out, you could maybe slip out in the evening and go hear Song speak. Or if you, ha if you had to work the evening, maybe you could catch him in the morning service that he did. Um, so that there were people with the kind of schedule flexibility. Um, that was also really important, I think, and in, in, for urban audiences. So, you know, there's a sense that th th these were very urban oriented, but then among those people in the city who was going. 
And that was really interesting to try to track down um, because no one ever sits down and, or at least John Sung never sat down and gave me a nice demographic of who was there, um, but instead tried to piece together various clues. And the clues led me to, to the following conclusion. First, um, it was interesting to find out that Song had some really powerful, rich supporters. Um, I, I give the example of a revival that he was going to hold in Tianjin in sort of Northern China. And he arrived in town and the church that was going to host him um, said, no, you can't speak here. Uh, but within 24 hours, his supporters who were happy that he had come managed to, to rent out um, the former president's great ceremonial hall that could seat seven to 800 people. And this was quite extraordinary because they had to pay hundreds of yuan to rent the place. And this is at a time where most workers in that city um, had an annual income that was less than 200 yuan a year. Um, and so to mobilize that kind of liquid capital really took money. And, and so that was a, a first clue. But then I started looking at the people he was naming in his diary that he was staying with, for instance, when he was in Tianjin, just to stay with that example. Um, he, you know, one was uh, the first, started the first Chinese architecture firm in the country and did some of the most prominent architectural um, developments for the new nationalist government. Um, one of the other people uh, who was very prominent was a major exporter importer and his wife was a medical doctor. Um, and so they also had some significant financial resources. It was just really interesting to see that he had these powerful backers um, and how Song used that to his advantage um, because he was, I find this really interesting how he presented himself sort of always as the poor dependent um, evangelist. He never asked for money wherever he went to preach, though he accepted whatever you might want to give. But he never set a charge. He didn't say, okay, I'll go to Tianjin, but you're going to have to give me 500 yuan. No, he just would go and then preach in hopes, you know, in a sense that someone would pay him or, or, or give him at least food to eat or something. And But what he would end up doing is this sort of, appearance of utter dependence that could really identify with many of the people in the audience who are also hoping that maybe they could just find employment um, of some kind, even for a day. I mean, when he showed up in that city of Tianjin, it was like 66% of the population was unemployed. Um, everyone was hustling for maybe a job just for today. And you know, John Sung was like that. He's hustling for hey, I'm just out here. I'm speaking today. I don't know if you're going to give me any money for it, but here I am. And so I think there was an appeal to that. Um, and there was also this sense, though, that he wasn't just one of these people hustling to make it for today because he was getting out of the car of these really wealthy people and he was hobnobbing with him. And he even he must they, they realized he had fame. He was selling postcards at his services of himself. Um, he, he certainly had a self-promotional streak. And um, but, but so there was he was a he was a poor boy in a sense, but he was the poor boy who had, had made good. He, and I think his audiences appreciated that. It's something he, they could maybe aspire to or wanted to emulate. And so, um, yes, he had a couple of wealthy backers, but they were just a, a handful. Most of the people were from a very different part of society. And so I've, I've described how, well, who were they? Um, and the first that I was able to eliminate is they weren't the underclass, the poorest of the city. 
Um, and there's a variety of reasons. Maybe the most obvious is simply that when John Sung preached, he hounded um, over and over again on, you know, don't go to movies, don't visit prostitutes, don't. And it was just sort of this, this catalog of things that you shouldn't do, but they all required money. And the underclass simply didn't have them. And in the neighborhoods they lived, there were no brothels, for instance, to go visit a prostitute. There were no movie theaters. It, it was just simply out of reach. And so it didn't make sense that these people would come and respond because so many people responded to his sermons if Song was telling them to leave behind something that they were not enmeshed in in the first place. So they seemed to fall outside of, of his target. So the question really became, well, if it's not the richest people who are showing up, maybe one or two, but that's about it, and it's not the poorest people, what about those in kind of in the middle? Um, and so I really tried to tease that out. And the long and short of it is, turns out that, that Song was primarily speaking to what in Chinese um, studies we call the Xiaoshimin or the petty urbanites, these sort of low middle class kind of pr professions, a sort of an aspiring class, um, so these were often the ones who had some education, worked in the department stores, um, maybe were students, maybe worked in a pharmacy. Um, so they, they were entering sort of the new marketplace that was happening in China's urban centers. Um, they, were the, they were the consumers in many ways. And um, so they were a significant part of the population, but not the, the necessarily the majority but they were the ones that, that found that Song was speaking to them. And I think they, he was able to really address their needs at sort of multiple levels because these petty urbanites, most of them had moved to the city recently and they were finding themselves a little bit overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, it seemed like the promise, if I can just make it to the city, everything will be go so well. And then they get there and the city just disappoints their dreams. And, and so they find themselves struggling with things like sickness. They're far sicker people in Tianjin and other cities. Um, you know, hygiene, the, the city had not been able to keep up its sewer system, for instance, um, only really functioned in parts of the city. And so, you know, so many people are becoming ill. They're, they're dealing with um, violence. The, the, the city's the number two reason to be hospitalized in China at the time was um, was violence, uh, workplace violence, you know, for instance, and it could break out over the most small things. So it's, it's terrifying in that sense. People also, I think, just really struggled with boredom. They had, as I said earlier, these hours of leisure. What are we supposed to do? And especially if you don't have a whole lot of money, uh, what do you do? And so Song sort of steps into that, that sort of environment and he begins to offer people some hope. And he does it in interesting ways. He speaks to their longing for a more stable environment. Um, he, he begins to preach in, um, in ways that, uh, how would I say this? It, 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 it captures, for, well, let me give an illustration, maybe around boredom. Um, what John Song does is, he he condemns a lot of the entertainment that many of the Xiaoshimin were enmeshed in, going to movies. One of my favorites, he really comes down hard on having picnics. Um, you know, and you read this and you think, oh my goodness, this, what a dry legalistic sense. He was just against any kind of modern entertainment. 
But I, the more I worked with Song, the more I came to discover he really wasn't against these um, forms of entertainment. What he was against was the sort of stupefying effect they had. People were numbing their pain by going to the movies, by reading a novel, by having a picnic, but they weren't recognizing the fact that they were actually in pain because something is terribly wrong here. And Song didn't want you to escape that it's wrong because he understood it's wrong because this is what the Bible predicted right before Jesus came back, comes back. Things are going to get really bad. So be alert. These are all symptoms. Your pain, your misery here in the city is telling you things are wrong because Jesus is about to return, but Jesus has a job for you to do before he comes back. And so instead of wasting your time going to the movie theater or laughing with your friends at the park on a picnic blanket, go out and tell other people that they need to repent and become new creations because Jesus Christ is about to return. And so in that sense, he, he gave them a new purpose. He, he took their lives from sort of these odd, long hours of downtime that they didn't know what to do with and so would numb with entertainments. And he gave them a new free form of uh, something to do in their, those off hours. And that was to share the gospel. And so he, he gave purpose and meaning to their lives at a point when they were desperately needed it. And I think people really absorbed and responded well to that kind of challenge um, and, and the way he, he opened doors for them to make meaning out of their lives when they threatened to seem to just sort of fall into sort of a numbness and disappointment. Yeah, thank you for that answer. And I'm, I'm really glad that you helped us locate the audience, who these audiences were in, in context of class. But I think the next question kind of builds up on um, this question of class and the audience, and that's um, its impact on women in general. And also, um, I think an important contribution that you make in this book, um, in chapter six, you titled A New Woman. And we see here now this um, song's ministry not only expanding in China, but also you see it going overseas. And as you mentioned, um, into Chinese communities uh, in, the, in Southeast Asia, uh, in countries such as Singapore or Dutch East Indies or Indonesia right now. But we see a specific case of Song being invited um, uh, by the Singapore Christian Union in 1935. But what was not anticipated was the significant impact and role that women played in Song's sermon, kind of challenging them to evangelize the island. As you mentioned, you know, uh, Song Sermon had an impact on, on, you know, challenging the audience. But, you know, we see this play a very big role on women here. So do you mind elaborating more on Song's message for the Chinese Christian women and how Chinese female converts responded to this call? Because we see, um, I think you uh, mentioned this in the book, how Chinese Christian women established uh, these uh, evangelical teams, um, this process of becoming a new woman. So please feel free to mention about this as well. Yeah, so it's really interesting how women in particular responded to Song's messages. When, when I'm able to go through some of the periodicals, um, the people who are writing in, how many of them are women, or when you get descriptions of the, the, the teams that form after Song leaves to go out and evangelize, you know, he challenges them leave behind your um, dead end ways and go out and preach the good news. 
how many of those teams were made up of women. It was really interesting. And in Singapore, we have the, the, the strongest records, the ones that have been best preserved. Um, and what, you've, what I found so interesting is at Singapore, when John Song showed up, only 33% of the, of the island was female. And yet in his evangelistic teams, well over half of the members are women. So they, they responded disproportionately to this invitation to go and spread the gospel. And I think for many women, Song sort of resolved this, this conflict, this internal conflict that they were, they were stuck in. On the one hand, they were being hounded with messages that they really needed to become um, modern women. Uh, and what did that look like could mean different things, but, you know, it was often develop, a, a nuclear family. You should, uh, be more invested in the economy, um, play a significant role in improving the lives of your neighbors. And so it was an activist kind of role and they, they, that was coming through in the media loud and clear in all those periodicals I talked about earlier that, you know, we need this new woman. But in their day-to-day -day lives, they found all kind of resistance to it. Um, people could say they wanted women to do that, but it was very threatening to have women come and take men's jobs at the factories. That wasn't so popular after all. Or, you know, in Singapore, in fact, um, observers noticed how women didn't have access to money. They didn't do any of the shopping. They were supposed to stay inside. And of course, in, in Chinese, one of the terms for a wife is a mei run, an inside person, literally. Um, just stay inside. That's where you belong. And that's what the social pressure was, to stay inside. And yet there was this media pressure saying, no, go outside. Um, and, and so women are, are sort of trapped in there until John Song shows up and he says, you don't have to listen to your family who's telling you to stay inside. You don't have to listen to the media that's telling you to go outside. You need to listen to God who says, preach the gospel. And so he, he challenges them and he tells women, do you, do you like to be dumb? Do you like to be mute, unable to speak? He said, you everyone has been given a voice for a purpose. God tells you to go share the good news. And by doing so, it seems as if he gives them sort of a divine permission slip to, to, to go out and take new roles for themselves. And what's fascinating is how, as these women do, how their lives are dramatically altered and, and just how small things change things. So when John Song told people to go out and evangelize, he said, do it as teams. And he would give rules how to do this. You need to be in a group of at least two. You need to get together at least once a week. Um, you need to go to a new location and share the good news. And one of my favorite rules was, he said, pastors and missionaries, they're always pay, paid to preach, but you're better than them. You have to pay for the privilege to preach. And so these women were told to scrounge up some coins because maybe you needed a bus fare to get somewhere new to preach, or maybe you wanted to hand out tracks. And so you needed five cents to be able to buy some tracks. But remember, these women didn't even have access to money to buy groceries. How are they going to do this? So you hear stories of how they're trying to get their kids to give them maybe a penny or on their way, they might try to uh, get a little money from a friend or, you know, they, they'll do whatever they can. But what's fascinating is 
It gives women for the first time economic resources, the very first time in their lives, they are part of the economy. Now they're buying tracks and they're getting bus tickets, but this is a new form of power and authority um, that they've never had before, financial power. And then you also see things that, you know, if they're going to operate well as a team, well, we should have a team leader. So you get a team leader. And then while we're collecting money, so we should have a team treasurer. So they get a team treasurer. Oh, and then we are supposed to send in reports about where we went and how many people listen to us preach. So I guess we should have a secretary to record all that down. So now you've got three different roles. You've got a leader, you've got a secretary, you've got a treasurer, and they start multiplying. And what's interesting is for most women at this time, they were still living under the Confucian um, ideal where you only had three roles. You were first a daughter, um, and then you were a mother, and then a widow. Uh, that's really the three positions that you could hold in society. And now you could be a mother and a treasurer, um, you know, or you could be a widow and a team leader. It was breaking up new categories. And so it was fascinating how the structures of the team um, introduced kind of a new modern identity and became a way for these women to, to foster this new role and position in society and to do it as a group. And it was, they, they did so many interesting things. Um, they wore the same uniforms so that they could begin to identify each other. And I hope that, I think that helps strengthen the sense of us. We belong together. We're doing something risky, but we're doing it together. And, um, and, and it just intensified a family feel to who they were and, just the strength that grew out of it was quite remarkable. So one of my big takeaways from this is how Song was a catalyst for women who really them, themselves then took advantage of the opportunities he put before them and used his revivals to create a new position for themselves in Chinese society. Um, really quite remarkable. It is. I mean, wow. We see this empowerment of women um, through these challenging sermons by Song, and and it's it's fascinating because I'm also reminded in this context of women evangelizing, we see different, um, I guess, uh, women, Christian women in other contexts. You know, we put their name as Bible women uh, in other contexts as well, and we see a, a similar form of them. You know, uh, in in Song's case, in, in especially in Singapore of how these women played a very significant role in the spread of Christianity, not only in China, but also in regions of Southeast Asia. So thank you for sharing um, uh, your insights on uh, the, this process of becoming a new woman uh, in Song's uh, ministry and story. Now in the final chapter, you present um, an interesting development that occurs in Song's ministry. And that is a healing ministry in which Song implements Chinese shamanistic practices of jumping up and down during his revival meetings and promoting the Bible as a sacred book imbued with special power. Um, this whole emphasis on healing as a step towards a new body. You express Song's work as, quote, performance like that of a shaman's, uh, in a way like a transformative uh, process of becoming uh, this new person. So what I'm curious to know um, are the implications of such healing ministry or, you know, ceremony um, as these were not done in private, but rather in public um, and in these in this um, widely uh, participated in front of audiences and in front of those attended these rivals. So could you explain more on um, uh, Song's mindset, um, Song's theology of, of healing? 
how one could obtain a new body? And um, second of all, what were these revival services that included this healing ceremony entail? Um, you know, you mentioned how, you know, we see song jumping up and down, and, but more so what, what, other, um, uh, uh, what other things was included in these ceremonies? And lastly, you know, how did Sung's healing ministry impact the modern Chinese Christianity as well? Mm. So one thing I think is important to understand as context for this is... <clears throat> There, there was this push in China, as I said earlier, for a new body. How are we going to make new people? Um, and new people, it will be reflected in a, in a new kind of body. And so whether that was through lotions and toothpaste or, or it was through exercise that there were, or, or different clothes, it, we, it should be reflected in some way that you look different. That's the sign that you are new. And of course, early on when, um, you know, when the empire had collapsed in 1911, cutting off the Chinese queue was a famous way for men to show that they belong to a new society or women bobbed their hair and got a perm. There, there were these physical manifestations that said, I'm part of new China. Um, and Song saw that, but became like some of his contemporaries and began to criticize many of these external manifestations of being new as really just superficial. It's easy to put on lipstick, um, but what about, so, but what would a new body look like if it's not lipstick or it's not clothes or it's not a new hairstyle? And the conclusion was a healthier body, a stronger body. And so Song is, is pursuing something like that. And he sees it's possible through Jesus Christ. And his theology was rather simple on this. Um, he said it frequently. He said, no sin, uh, no sickness. So as long as you could be freed from sin, then you would be freed from sickness. And Jesus um, had the power to do both. The atonement was what he would call a double cure, both for sin and for sickness. And so it, his, his services were designed to, to do, go about doing that. He didn't believe that you could heal a sickness and then later have someone repent of their sin. That was working from the outside in. You needed to work from the inside out. So you had to have people repent first. And so that's what he did in his services. He would invite people um, who wanted to be healed to confess their sins, to name them out loud. Sometimes he had them write them on a card, um, but you, you needed to physically sort of expel, expunge the, sick, the, the sin in your heart, at which point then he believed you were available to receive the healing power of God. And he saw himself often as that key channel. He would use James chapter five, have the elders uh, pray for you, anoint you with oil, and, um, and you'll be healed. And so he would have people come up and he would anoint them with oil and pray for them and often quote a, a, a scripture, a verse over them and then send them on. And because there were hundreds of these people, it was rather brief, um, but it could be really powerful. One of the things I find most interesting and maybe most um, powerful about this from maybe a psychological point of view, not the actual maybe spiritual dimension of healing, though it may be part of that too, is the way that Song allowed each person 
to name their sickness that they needed to be healed from themselves. So you have to understand for those of us who have grown up with biomedicine, we go to the doctor and we tell them our symptoms. And then the doctor tells us what, what our sickness is. Um, or if you go to a tr more traditional Chinese medical doctor, they might take your pulse, look in your eyes, maybe view your tongue and should be able to tell you what the sickness is um, based on those assessments. Um, and so you, you've spent, most of us have spent our whole life being told what our sickness is. But John Song didn't care what you thought it was. You could say it was an evil spirit. Fine. Jesus had the power to conquer evil spirits. It could be, um, it could be a, a, a bacteria. It could be um, a bad attitude. It, it really didn't matter what it was, however you defined it, as long as you put it before God, who is powerful enough to deal with all sin and all sicknesses. And so it was really interesting to see how Song invited people to name for themselves what bound them and to then entrust themselves to Jesus' power to be delivered. Um, so that was quite remarkable. And it has an ongoing impact. I mean, in China today, um, Christians have a high belief in divine healing. Um, in some places, people, you know, up to 90% of people will say their turn toward Christianity was around divine healing. Um, this is just a critical component. And again, John Song was not the only healer operating in China in the early 20th century, but he may have been the most influential because he wasn't limited to a particular denomination or he wasn't particularly uh, limited to a particular part of China. He traveled all across China and Southeast Asia to the diaspora. He really took the healing ministry through all parts of Chinese Christianity. And so in that sense, I think leavened it and has made this a very popular and common part of what it means to be a, a Christian in China or a Chinese Christian today. Wow, Professor Ireland, thank you so much um, for that detailed answer and also for taking the time today to discuss your book thoroughly um, as we took a look at the fascinating life of John Sung and how this also provides a very good perspective on understand understanding um, Chinese Christianity um, in the 20th century as well. Um, as we end today's interview, though, one final question I would like to ask you is, um, what are you currently working on right now? And do you mind sharing with us your current and future projects and what you hope to work on? That's well, kind of you to ask. I'm Right now I'm excited about a project that springs out of the China Historical Christian Database that you mentioned at the beginning. And this is an attempt to create sort of spatial maps of where Christianity um, or Christian people and institutions were located over 400 years but it's also an attempt to create social networks, um, who knew whom and how were they connected. And it's that second part that I'm particularly interested in because someone like John Song had an extraordinary career. Um, and I, I admire what he was able to do, the distances he traveled, the number of sermons he preached, how widely um, his influence reached through various periodicals and publications. But what I realize is that it was not a singular achievement. He was able to do this because of larger changes that were going, that were happening in um, Chinese Christianity, sort of after 1925, around 1925 to 1950. And 
sometimes I call this, for lack of a better term, the emergence of Chinese evangelicalism. Um, it's sort of this hard to describe group like evangelical is and <laughs> because it's not a denomination. It's not exactly a set of beliefs. And we can't say it's just people who maybe read this certain kind of periodical or journal, or it's not going to certain events like revivals or summer camps, though many of them do go to revivals and summer camps. So how do you begin to piece together who was part of this network that formed this powerful sort of institution that John Sung was interacting with, gave him the platform that I'm calling Chinese evangelicalism. And I'm my, my current theory is that maybe we can do it through looking at overlapping social networks. So uh, we can look at who were attending certain events, what kinds of people were going to those events. We can look at certain publications, who was publishing in certain publications and what, and what were they writing about? Um, and we can look at where these people were located at. Um, and they, they also, these sort of Chinese evangelicals were starting new institutions like the uh, the Christian League or the Shanghai Bible Society, studying out who, who are members of these. And by looking at these social networks, beginning to see who are those dense nodes, who has the most connections coming to them. Maybe they published the most, went to the big events, um, were high up in the organization of these institutions. Who are these people? And using them maybe as examples to begin to flesh out what was important to this nascent evangelicalism that, that was taking shape in um, 20th century China. So I'm excited about that. Um, it's a chance to use big data in a way that I've never done before, but it's also an opportunity to maybe see and describe something that people who have studied Christianity in China have known about for a long time. Um, some have called them, you know, moderate fundamentalists. Some have called them evangelicals. Some have called them sort of the regular Chinese churchgoer. But they're these throwaway terms. We can't really describe them, and we don't know exactly who belonged, what the boundaries were, and how many. Uh, well, we know that they were probably the majority of, of Chinese Christians. But but giving them more flesh, what did they look like? Who were they? What did, what were they involved in? Um, this is maybe that chance to bring that to light. So I'm excited about that. That's my current project right now. And maybe I'll have something to report about in a year or so. Oh, thank you so much for sharing about your current project. And I look forward to reading more of your works on, on Chinese Christianity and using, as you mentioned, big data to understand um, the maybe the complexities behind and, and, and seeing the, uh, the social networks in understanding the whole picture of Chinese Christianity as well. But once again, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. Uh, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explore Daryl Ireland's book, John Sung, Modern Chinese Christianity and the Making of a New Man, published by Baylor University Press in 2020. This is your host, Young Ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.